This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as a wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. Do you have the tools to turn your insights into action? Let's be honest, not all marketing activities are created equal. AppSlyer's analytics suite simplifies its complex data and gives you a unified view of campaign performance so you can make better, faster marketing choices at every stage of the customer journey. The goal is to create exceptional experiences that keep customers engaged. To succeed, you need to meet your customers where they are. AppSlyer's customer experience and engagement suite powered by a reliable deep linking engine lets you create personalized journeys that increase conversion and return on every experience. In addition, AppSlyer is going to keep your budget safe from mobile ad fraud. Bots and click farms aren't going to generate revenue for you. That's why you need a comprehensive fraud protection solution to make sure you're investing in the right channels and only measuring and paying for real actions. Are you ready to start making good choices? Great. Go to appslier.com and get yourself an attribution partner you deserve. I think what's what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky. You, your game is an instant hit. It's resonating with users. But for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zeloff, VP of Marketing at IronSource. Hey, and welcome everybody. Uh, today, we're going to have an interesting podcast, a little bit different than the previous one. We're going to talk about harassment in games. And for this very challenging topic, we have three amazing speakers. So first, Annette Deloy, Chief Marketing Officer at DirtyBit and co-founder for Women in Games Norway. Welcome, Annette. Thank you. Then we have Tiffany Keller, Director of Product at Cybo. Previously, you worked at King, where you were a global lead for women's group, in addition to being, you know, working on ad products. That's probably the, uh, the bigger part of the, of the job. <laughs> Welcome, Tiffany. Thanks. Uh, and then uh, third, Juliet Dupre, former head of talent at Tilting Point, current VP of people and culture at Player One. At Player One does in-game advertising for AAA games. Welcome, Juliet. Thank you. All right, so this has been, we, we've been trying to set this up for uh, for a hot minute. It's a difficult topic, especially difficult topic for me to moderate. But I wanted to kick it off by by asking you, what is sort of a, like the most agitating thing 
about the topic of harassment in games? Like, like what annoys you of this topic? So just to, so I understand like where everybody's coming from. So Juliet, can I start with you on this one? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, it's such a long list. It's a really hard question to answer, but yeah. as far as agitation and annoyance, I'd say that because of the nature of inequity, I'll say between, you know, genders and represented genders and, and gender identities, my my appearance and gender affect my credibility even to speak on this topic because you know as far as you know speaking to you know anyone in, in a business who who has a discussion with me on this topic i am also a stakeholder in their eyes potentially from a form of bias because of my demographic in a way that actually reduces credibility potentially and that it's such a chicken and egg problem. I find that extremely agitating. So, so you feel that it's more difficult to talk about this topic being a woman in games? I do. Interesting. I do. Because I feel the same way to talk about this topic being a man in games. So so we're kind of in the same boat. Tiffany, do you feel the same way or, or, or other things that agitate you about this topic? I think my annoyance is similar, but maybe coming from a slightly different place in that I actually don't consider this a women's topic mm -hmm. at all or a diversity topic. I consider it a culture topic and it's annoying how off limits discussions like these feel or that they can be really contentious and people get so uh, tied up in possibly saying the wrong thing that they just don't approach it at all. But to me, it's about building a culture where everyone feels included. And when you think about an awesome work culture that retains people for a really long time, why would you only talk about 70% of your office? Don't you want to talk about 100% of them? And if that 30% could actually be 50%, if you could grow faster because of that, because of that culture being approachable, mm -hmm. wouldn't you want to put everything you can into talking about that and building a culture like that? But I think that aspect just gets missed because we really stay in the how to not get sued territory. And really this this can be so much more than that. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of fear to talk about this. And even, I mean, even as I was going through these questions, I was trying to be like, I mean, we, we wrote these questions multiple times. I didn't even know where to approach kind of due to that same type of fear. But I do have to say that Cybo is known to be a very uh, inclusive company. I hear that the CEO does these kind of like, all hands every week and, and everybody gets to ask the questions and so forth. So, so in that sense, you know, good culture. Anyway, Annette, your yeah, turn. Yeah. Same things. Uh, yeah. Same things. But to add something a, a bit different, perhaps is that I've been in the games industry now for six years and prior to that many years in tech. And what I still feel is happening at a lot of events is that people running the events want to focus on diversity and then they invite a bunch of women to attend a panel to talk about how it's like to be a woman in which which i i feel feel is starting to get so annoying that i've stopped accepting being part of these panels because i think we've all heard the stories by now and we should talk about on one side we should talk about how to solve things like we're I'm, I'm glad we're talking today about that. But I also just want when people set up uh, events, they just think diversity in, you know, from the beginning so that there is a diverse crowd in the mm -hmm. panel and not gather all the women in one panel and every all the men in one panel. And then you kind mm -hmm. of have, oh, there is a panel of ad, ads, for example, or how you can work on monetization. And then there is the panel of 
women in games or women in marketing or things like that. So that that's a bit annoying to me. Yeah, I understand. Being women. <laughs> but almost the worst is when they couldn't find a woman to be on the women's experience panel and they actually have a man talking about what it's like to be a woman in the company. And I just find that's always awkward. Or entertaining. <laughs> Depends on how, how you wow. approach it. If uh, This is the last thing I'm going to say. So then we just go ahead. Like I'm going to approach it also from my perspective. What I find the most difficult about this topic, and I don't know if it's annoying, but just difficult to approach this is that a lot of people have, not a lot, some people, it just feels like a lot because they're vocal. Some people have malicious intent when, when others talk positively about diversity, they try to attack that person. Like, well, your organization is not diverse because you don't have this and you don't have that. Even if the person states that their intent is to go towards that direction, this has happened to me personally, that has happened to other ones. And, and I think that pushes back from, from, from some people being open about what they want to achieve and talk about their diversity. Mm -hmm. If they feel that nothing is good enough, instead of somebody saying like, oh, 10% of your employees are women, that's a good start or 10 or 15% is minority. That's, you know, you're heading to the right direction. Like what else are you thinking about doing to increase this number? But if the first thing to say is like, oh, 10%, screw you. You can't even talk about this until it's like 50%. It's like, how are you going to get there? If the first thing is being attacked of even like stating that you're on the road. So I think that's like malicious intent. And it's kind of easy to dunk on, on somebody uh, who hasn't achieved it and just says that they're going to try to achieve this, this sort of a goal. So that's all. That's all I got to say. So, so love that. So, so let's, let's start talking about what's going on in the industry today. Do you feel that things are getting better or worse? And Juliet, I want to start with you since you're the, uh, the HR professional here and you look at these things from a little bit of a different perspective. What, what's your take? A couple things. When I look at this topic, it's a little complex. Like Annette, I've been in tech for a while in addition to games and entertainment and a couple of different companies in games, a couple of different companies in tech. And so it's a little bit conflated for me because the games industry sort of takes this on as a games industry problem. And yes, we know, and I've you know, academically even studied specifically in games how this plays out, but it's part of a much larger social issue that extends to tech and extends to other industries like banking and finance and things of this nature too. So do I think it's getting better? I think from a legal perspective, we have a lot more protection now than we've ever had in history. I think that's not meaningless. That's really something that that is important and it shows some progress. And it's sort of, to me, I think of the Martin Luther King Jr. quote about, you know, does does you know the long arm of the long history bend towards justice? And I, I like to think yes, um, but I think it's also there's pen, there's a pendulum swing to it, just the same as, as a lot of politics. You have these these huge leaps of awareness and and movements uh, like Me Too and things of this nature, and then you have a backlash, and then you have another swing, and mm. then you have a backlash. So it, living in that world and being very close to it, I think we all feel sometimes like we question: Is this really actually getting better? And when you are living it and in your own personal professional career, you have experiences that may make you doubt how things are going in terms of the bigger picture and whether it's getting better, that can be challenging as well. But personally, I think yes, but I think it's a it's slow. It's going to continue to be a slow journey. It always has been a slow journey. Annette, do you think we're in the swing or in the backlash of things? Like where would you, would you say in terms of just games industry? Well, I think especially after the Me Too movement, we hear more of the stories because I think in the past it's been more 
in many cases, it's been the norm. So it's been kind of the, yeah, that's happening. And I remember even myself, if, if there were some experiences were just met with, yeah, just take it as a compliment or things like that. So <laughs> I think, yeah, it, that, but I think that changed when the Me Too movement happened. So I think that we are talking more and people are sharing more. And now we see these lawsuits coming and even more lawsuits. So I think that there is a lot of stories untold still, but I think it perhaps, I hope this is a moment where things change to the better because we see that people are really engaging now in these discussions and we have walkouts and we have even yeah. players reacting and banning games and things like that. So I think that at the time we're in now, we have more people listen, I think, and more people start setting demands of things to change to the better. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. Uh, sorry for laughing. I just feel uh, yeah. when you said like, take it as a comment, that's such an yeah. outrageous comment. That's like from yeah. like 72 straight up. So Tiffany, you work both in, in US as well as in EU at big companies and Cybo is, is Cybo a big company or medium size? It's kind of Subway Surfer is such a big game. So it's kind of hard to say, but anyways, you work both in, in EU and, and in and US, like, is there a difference in this topic between the two different continents? Yeah, I think there's a, a huge difference. And I think that's why it's a little difficult for me to actually answer the question, is it getting better? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of the difference in my experience has come from working in a different country, pretty much every single job I've had. Now I'm in Denmark, which is really known for, for being progressive, but I've also worked in, in California and in London. I, I think a lot of the issues right now that are really topical, a lot of it actually is US-based just because part of it is a like structural regulatory environment and part is also cultural differences. So California is an at-will-to-work state. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that you can be terminated at any time with no notice. The employer doesn't have to give a reason. You don't have any right to severance or anything like that. On the flip side, also, you can get some of the best salaries in the world in Silicon Valley. But I, I think if not everyone is able to get that, and then you can easily end up in a, a difficult situation. So that can naturally place a lot more emphasis on the employer itself to have different practices that are higher than the standard of the law, which doesn't always happen or is not always then enforced or practiced according to the code of conduct. So it's a lot harder, I think, to really advocate for yourself or for fair policies, or if you feel like you were wrongfully terminated to be able to trace it back. Because in the EU, a lot of the things that I, I saw happening in the US would just simply not be allowed to because you cannot um, just let someone go for no reason. So then if you're going to give a reason and maybe biases behind it, it's a lot harder to then make up a different reason than to just simply not give one. So I think it's really hard to actually change some of the behaviors or the bad practices in the U.S. Or it's easy for them to go unnoticed until they get so bad that you can have something like a class action lawsuit because you have so much proof. But a lot of those smaller cases go unnoticed. And so a company doesn't really get the information that it needs to maybe course correct along the way. And you're kind of just waiting for there to be this big movement similar to what happened in Hollywood with Me Too. Mm. I think another part of it is also cultural in that America has a huge, and tech especially, uh, meritocracy kind of mindset. 
And that's really susceptible to blind spots. It really works if everyone is the same level of privilege because the idea behind it is that if you work hard enough, you will get it, you will make it. And it's a lot of kind of the founding principles of the American dream. So when you see someone not making it, it's, I think, a lot faster to be inferred or assumed that it's because the person was just simply not trying hard enough or they wouldn't, weren't putting in the extra effort. And in America, work-life balance is typically not as highly prized as it might be in Europe. Got it. So, so what you're saying is that, that because there's not the same level of security, if you will, for the individuals, it's much harder to raise these topics because you can be terminated at will. And the second part was because it's the cultural norm is to grind and work hard and, and kind of, you know, just, just pull yourself by your bootstrap type of mentality. Yeah. It's just like, there's no room for whiners. It's meritocracy. Just push forward, forget about it. Just move ahead and, and everything will be fine. And, and it's often invisible that if someone is a minority, mm-hmm. they don't have the same access to opportunity. So a lot of the time when people are trying to solve issues around why are minorities not getting promoted at the same rate, they kind of miss the, oh, maybe the juicy projects, the good opportunities mm-hmm. were not handed out equally. They were maybe due to unconscious bias, the manager giving it to people who were more similar to them. Mm-hmm. And if processes aren't built to combat that, you then do see slowly a difference in the overall levels that people are because there is not that equal access. And if you have a meritocracy, you can say, oh, well, it's you know that person's fault. They're not hungry enough, where that does happen, of course, everywhere. But it is, I think, a lot more culturally condoned in Silicon Valley. Well, just to be clear, I've, I've once walked out of an interview. We were doing a, a retro of an interview. And the, the, the hiring managers said when he said he's not going to hire the person, he said, I don't see enough me in him. So, <laughs> so I've, I've heard, it also happens in EU. Juliet, so, so Tiffany was raising a lot of, a lot of points regarding the American culture, as well as the, the, how would I say, employment laws. What's, what's your perspective? I mean, you've dealt with this and, and you've been looking at the equal opportunity inside a pretty large publisher like Tilting Point with multiple different locations. What's your, what's your kind of take on this? Sort of reminds me of your earlier point when I first joined Tilting Point. It was about 18 people and mm. I was at some point the only woman. So it was, we eventually got to... Uh, 60% women, female at some point. So it was a long journey and we grew a lot. So when you're hiring a lot, you get to sort of develop things, you know, that way and sort of like be more cognizant and do trainings and talk about bias. And, and, you know, I was fortunate to have a team that, you know, ostensibly cared about those things. It's still hard, even though, you know, this is an issue to understand it in yourself and to get teams to understand it in themselves. Otherwise you have people walking out of interviews, making the exact Mm -hmm. same comment that you just made. But Tiffany's, I mean, she's not wrong. Everything you said was was so on point. The at-will system is intended to protect both employer and employee and that either can end the relationship at any time. No obligation. You know, it's like one of these like uh, casual relationships, like, (laughs) oh, okay, at any time, like either of us can just say like, we're good. It's been fun. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the system of capitalism that 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 rose in, in, in the U.S. is very employee employer favorable. 
And it's only been through the process of legislation chipping away at some of the more egregious power power dynamics there that we've that we've developed some of the more progressive policies, most notably in California, with New York being a close second. So I would say now most employers are very, very scared of, you know, these types of things, but they don't really know how to address them. So and employees are also scared, you know, and I know that for myself, especially when I was more junior in my career and entering the industry that I love that I felt so passionate about, you know, things happened that I should not have been silent about, but I, you know, was afraid that I loved this job. I loved mm-hmm. the people that I worked mm-hmm. with. And, and so you, you, you know, you, you sort of make these decisions in a moment and, and it can be very intimidating to be in the employee shoes in any of these types of situations. So I really agree with everything she said. Fortunately, we're seeing progress, but it's certainly, this at will dynamic certainly makes things more difficult. Now, I will say at will isn't just for for anyone who's listening and more curious about these things. At will isn't a blanket excuse to fire anyone for any reason. Any reason has an asterisk with about 50,000 exceptions. You cannot fire someone on the basis of race, gender and a host of other things uh, according mm-hmm. to federal and state law. So, it's not completely okay to do anything, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have any lawsuits. But it is really difficult to be the in a position of trying to say, who, you know, where do I even turn from here if I feel something's uh, not properly handled or that I was harmed? It's 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 very difficult. It's very it's very intimidating. It's very scary. It's very stressful. You don't want to get your name on a list of people, mm-hmm. you know, that oh they have this situation. I mean, we've all seen in the headlines. You know, you, we know the names. We know the names of people who speak up, and and they get doxxed and they get this and they get that. And and that's just in addition to the fear that people naturally have with a situation like that, you have in the games industry, these extra levels of, of, of potential harm that will come to you. How much of sort of a playing along is there? Like what I mean by that is, I, I don't know from the woman's perspective, at least for, for, for guys, just like you go along with a bunch of things when you're younger, like, oh, are we doing this? Well, we're doing this. And, and kind of like just adjusting to that. Cause you, you mentioned one thing is like, you could have raised the certain issues earlier, but you didn't, was that because of you felt intimidated or was it because, I don't know if the playing along is the wrong word, but but kind of like felt like this is the way. It's overdetermined, right? It's overdetermined because of the way that women are often raised because of the desire to be in an industry that you love and not Mm -hmm. have any harm come to that situation because you're maybe new or want to fit in in a dynamic. That's what I want to say, fit in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, and there may be a host of psychological reasons why someone, myself included, might in a certain situation mistake something for like, do I take this as a compliment? Mm -hmm. Do I like, how should I, you know, in that instant when something is said or something strange happens? Now, there were some situations that crossed the line that weren't even you know, there was, there was nothing flattering about it. Nothing could have been perceived in that way, mm-hmm. but it's still the sense, all these other reasons I mentioned, not least of which is the first, you know, how we're raised a lot of times, not everyone, but many women are raised when they're young to be more compliant, to be, to, to be nice, to make other people feel comfortable. And, and that, that is a dynamic that I think we don't really talk about in these situations and maybe not everyone feels that way. And I, I admire and, and learn from my, my colleagues who are women who are identified as female, who don't take that approach, who have no problem standing up for themselves. But, you know, there many, many women have sort of a people pleaser com- complex 
And that can also play into these things in a way that I think we don't even really talk about. Yeah. I think, I think it plays with, <laughs> with, with everybody. Like when you're in a, any kind of setting and if you, like, you don't want to stand out, especially if you're like, what I mean, when you're new, when you're new to the industry, when you're young, you don't, it doesn't matter whether it's a sports team or a job or a, or a mm-hmm. club, you just don't want to stand out. You want to mix in, you want to be mm-hmm. part of this club. So I think, you know, I, I kind of understand where that is coming from. And only after, you know, five, six, 10 years, when you're, more you know senior both in your career as well as just being more adult you kind of think back like why did i do that like why didn't i do Mm -hmm. this why didn't do that just you were young and Mm -hmm. and you shouldn't blame yourself of of those type of things i don't know just kind of like thinking about that i disproportionately see harassment or you know behavior that's not inclusive happening to uh, women who are more junior and you know, a lot of the time it's that people are aware of hierarchy and they would not say something that is not politically correct mm-hmm. or worse than that to someone who is director level or senior manager. Mm-hmm. And if we also know that there's, yes, less women in gaming, but the majority of those that are are in more junior positions, that just compounds the problem even more. Yeah. So it's not surprising that I hear a lot of people say most of the harassment or uncool behavior they experience that was further than a microaggression, like more than just, you know, something not politically correct happened when they were younger. And so a little bit of it is when you're new, you are not sure how to speak up. And sometimes actually there can be retaliation against it that is, you know, implicit and not noticeable, but also that it happens more often when people are not worried about your status in the company. And that you're in, I mean, you're the founder of Women in Games in Norway. Like, what's it like there are probably some some who are new to the to the industry like how do they perceive it and how they how do they approach their their career in games like like what's the i've never been to women in games meeting naturally like how do you sort of instruct women who are entering the games industry we founded the organization i guess two years ago and it started from one of my co-founders who who got a job in games and she didn't know anyone, any women uh, working in games in Norway. So she just wanted to build her own network. And then she realized, oh, there is actually seemed like quite a few women, but the report saying that in Norway, it's only 12% of everyone working in games who are women. So we, we wanted to have this, it started with this uh, need to create a network and then we defined it to be a more like or a network for underrepresented genders. So we started meet, having some meetups and then we decided to, since we were a small group, we wanted to be under the umbrella of Women in Games International. So they helped us set everything up and discussions have evolved. So the events now that we are going to soon hopefully have uh, real life events again. It's not really about having an event just for women. It's more about having an inclusive environment for everyone who believes in what what we believe in and what we want to achieve, which is to have a more inclusive industry and to have more diversity in in the industry. So that's where we are at now. I've also been part of just organizing some casual breakfast events during, for example, in London when there is an event. And that's where... We kind of feel like we meet a lot of people that I never met before. And it's very clear to me that they haven't had somewhere to go to talk about mm-hmm. what they experienced. So 
it starts maybe to just like, okay, we meet up, we meet some new people, we learn what they do. At least a couple of times it's, it's turned into this, okay, I, I have something I need to talk with someone. So it's clear that there isn't, you know, it's difficult to find someone to talk about because you are, for all the reasons already mentioned, you're afraid of retaliation. You don't want to bother. You want to still be part of uh, part of the industry that you love. So that, that's one thing I've, I've seen and heard a lot of stories. But in general, the, the work that we do in with Women in Games Norway, luckily, been more focused on, you know, how do we how do we work with network? Is there mm -hmm. what can we share? And we've had this we created this discord server where everyone who believes in what we do is is invited and we share we have like casual conversations but also more planning to do more meetups on mm. for example project management so it's more about helping each other out and having a friendly and safe environment so yeah that's what where we are at now mm. Juliet, i wanted to ask mm. since you you know you studied multiple different in industries and you worked in different industries is this typical in, like, is this sort of a challenge that, that minorities are having in, in games just because they're such a small minority, like Annette said, 12%? <clears throat> or do do minorities face same type of challenges and women say face same type of challenges when the percentage is larger? I think so, yeah. I mean, I started out in the legal world, in the world of law firms, where you would think, you know, that this is something that, the whole organization must be so sensitive to that it wouldn't be an issue. And it was an enormous issue. Mm -hmm. It was an enormous issue. And, and performative doesn't even begin to describe sort of the, the approach there. I, I think the word minority is very misleading. You can actually be the majority population and still be severely oppressed. Yeah. We know this. And so that, for that reason that, you know, every time we use the word minority, I, I think I wonder if people are people who may not understand this message misunderstand the meaning it means represented as an underclass <laughs> that's really what we're talking about you can have in numbers far far more and we know from history that many many times there's been a class of people who outnumber those who oppress them and 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 the the, the psychological boundaries and, and societal infrastructure keep them in place locked in place so, so yes, I think that many other industries face this challenge. What I don't see in other industries is the level of violence that comes at those who speak up. Generally, this <clears throat> sort of, you know, the swatting and things like that, like you don't see that in banking, finance, or even tech mm -hmm. and entertainment, you know, that, that's a whole other level of intrusion that I think is, is very unique to the male-female dynamic. When we see this this kind of dynamic, it's really that's really unique to games, and it's something that has kept you know myself included from from really doing a lot of these kinds of discussions, to, not to put too fine a point on it. Yeah. yeah. So, so you mentioned that when you were at Tilting Point, you were able to increase the uh, the percentage of women up to sixty yeah. percent. I wanted to kind of touch upon that point, just because of personal interest. Like, how do you get more women? to apply and, and join game companies, uh, given, so, given like we, we talk about so many challenges and, and, you know, the environment is, it can be considered hostile mm -hmm. uh, and so forth and so forth. Like, but you know, the problem how, is how that, do you even get them in the door? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, how do you get them even to apply? Like that's, that's yeah. a lot of the challenges that, that I'm personally seeing and have been seeing for, for the past, you know, 13 years. It's just, there's not that many applicants. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So 
you have to kind of look at every organization uniquely and the answer for one is not necessarily the answer for another. Mm -hmm. In our case, as I mentioned, we, we knew we were hiring a lot. We knew we wanted to start an internship program. And so we were able to leverage the internship program to mm -hmm. get from the pipeline of female talent. And those folks, you know, rose up the ranks. And, and so it really affected, you know, in the coming years, it's been probably about four or five years since I was there. It, you know, it, it's established this totally different population at the ground floor level that then was able to you know to grow but it's it's always a challenge for the senior ranks if you're looking to to improve representation of, of any type of underrepresented group in your senior ranks your executive mm -hmm. team your senior leadership that's where i think <clears throat> most companies really struggle even if they have this kind of approach to say well we can at least start working on our numbers we can at least start looking at this company and saying you know does it look like the global population okay no okay what can we do about that so that's that's one way to approach it and then you sort of like well my pipeline will fill out the ranks mm -hmm. in in due time if we mentor that mentor everyone and, and give folks opportunity and that's where the idea of equity comes in right because there's a great illustration and i'll, I'll try and find it if if you need me to but there's the idea of equ equity versus versus equality right equality is everyone gets the same portion equity meaning we just for privilege and we adjust for these other things that we know um, have held others back. When it comes to getting getting the resumes and just getting attraction, I mean, a lot of what we did was going on campus because, you know, the internship programs, that's, you know, you can first things go and show up, right? And it takes a lot of time out of a lot of highly paid people's lives to stop working on whatever, you know, project they have for the, for the product and go out to a campus and actually spend time with all these people who may not even at the end of the day end up in the company. But that actually does make a difference and it makes a difference on the industry as well, even just to talk to young people from different backgrounds and groups and, and give them the opportunity to understand what the company does. And maybe they don't join your company, but you know what? Maybe they join another company and that's good for our industry. But we also did recruit a lot of great talent at the university level for our company. And these are, you know, people, both male and female, who may not have had that much passion or interest in games. And this is a really, really interesting point, right? Because not everyone has been exposed to games in their early life for a variety of social reasons, cultural reasons. They may be interested in the idea of it once they're introduced to it. Do we shut those people out and say, oh, if you weren't a gamer for life, you don't belong here, right? Or like, how do you deal with that? Because this is where a lot, you know, especially with the male-female dynamic in games, this is this is a big argument, right? Like, do these people, you know, these people, do they belong here? You know, these people who aren't, who didn't grow up as gamers. And so then you may end up with people who are very passionate about the project. Maybe they're, maybe they're working on, on AI and they love AI, but maybe they don't play games. Mm -hmm. You know, is that okay if they're passionate and they love their team and they love the work that they're doing? So these are ways to sort of expand the pipeline, but you, you're, you know, you're looking at it in different ways. And we're talking about diversity at, 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 a, at a more broad level just to talk about diversity at the traditional level. I hope that helps. <laughs> no, that, that oh, go ahead, Tiffany. Yeah. Oh, oh. oh sorry, Annette. Everybody yeah. wants to talk. <laughs> yeah, everybody. So, yeah, so when I joined our company, we were, I was number eight and we've grown to 23 and we have 45% women at the company mm. and we have like roots from more than 10 different countries. And what we've seen is that we really, we work really hard to write job postings, for example. And there's a lot of good resources online to how to avoid alienating people that might not apply if you, for example, list 10 requirements, because are they really requirements or is it nice to have, or do you need to state that? 
and it's it's also about so it's about the words and how you how you describe the title it's about how your website looks what photos do you have we've seen that it really helps to have photos of our diverse team that makes people even some people comment in the job application it seems like you have a team where i identify and i feel like i can belong so you know the more diverse team you have the the easier it, it can get right and also where do you post the job postings because if you post it through your own network which is you know uh, for example highly dominated by your own mm. friends or close to the circle you might end up getting applications from people who look like you right or uh, are, are like you so be careful about where you post so that you get you know, make sure that you can actually reach people to get them to apply. And then, of course, when when we you get people to join, you also need to work hard on getting people to stay at your company, right? So, but it it, it, it is challenging. But there are many companies who are good role models and who also share how they have successfully managed to build more diverse teams. Mm. Tiffany, you had something. Yeah, I think a lot of what I was going to say was was covered, though there's a few other things. But I, I really liked what Juliet was saying around people having to be gamers, because I also think that there's a lot of women who are gamers that would never call themselves a gamer. And we have to realize that actually today gamer is a gendered word. So if a recruiter in an interview just asks you, hey, so are you a gamer? Because we like to hire gamers. That is different than have you played games before. Oh, what kind of games were those, right? Because before I worked at Zynga, I never would have called myself a gamer because I didn't like Halo. I didn't like Call of Duty. And to me, that's what a gamer meant or, or World of Warcraft. I had not played the stereotypical gamer games, but I had played a lot of GameCube games and Nintendo and Words with Friends. So I loved those and didn't realize that actually the majority of gamers are in fact female until after I worked in gaming. So if you're talking to someone who is not already in the industry, that's immediately going to make them feel othered. And I think also at like the heart of what Annette was saying with the website looking diverse is that if you have a diverse leadership team, they're talent magnets for people knowing that being different is not going to hold them back and they'll be able to see the company as one that they really have uh, a future with. And when I also think about what Juliet was saying with the intern program, it reminds me of something that we did at a, a past company, but kind of like extrapolated it out a little bit further where we saw that we had a good amount of senior women in a lot of the support services, but not actually in the game teams themselves. So we really looked at the JDs making the language inclusive, taking off a lot of the requirements, but also that I think when you look at it, okay, why are interns such an easier way to get a more diverse population? It's because women underestimate themselves on average. And it's, it's sad, but it's absolutely true. So women tend to be much more uncomfortable applying to a job unless they satisfy 100% of the criteria. And on average, will apply if they satisfy 50%. So one part of the, is the job description, but the other is actually, how do you plan for your headcount allocation in the hiring pool? So what one thing that we tried was when we wanted a like senior artist position, we would then actually open the position below it of a mid-level artist. And then we would get the sourcers for talent within both pools. And a lot of the time we actually found that women who were overqualified for the mid-level artist position would apply to that 
because they think, oh, what's safest is when I change companies to stay in the same position. Or typically men will look for a promotion when they change companies. So when they would say, oh, actually this person is so good, we can put them into the senior artist pool. Then they would interview against everyone there. And that way I think we were able to get like 20% more women in the actual game teams over the course of a year or so. So that made a huge difference. And typically also the business will also save money because if that person was applying to a role where they thought they would not mm -hmm. even make the level above it, then you can bring them in on the early side of that pay scale rather than someone who applied to that pay scale might be expecting the end of it. So it's good for having a more diverse workforce and also helping <coughs> someone get maybe more salary than they would have mm -hmm. thought they could, but they're happy with it. And you're actually happy with it because they're right where you think they should be in that more senior level. I, I didn't know that, that that's that actually what you said is that women won't apply for a job if they don't feel that they fill all the job descriptions. Mm -hmm. That actually sounds very true. Just not, not that it sounds very true like that, because you said that men apply when they feel like 50% is covered. Yeah. That is 100% fact. Like that's what, you know, a lot of game companies, we just bump up the title, even though we're looking at somebody from a lower level. So for example, you might be looking for lead or directory. Like you can see these, these type of titles. This is how we adjust. We're like, well, we want somebody who's currently lead, but they're going to apply only if we say that it's a director and then they're going to come in, but we're going to offer them lead so they can grow to a director. That's how, how men work. But that's actually a really good point is, is do, do the reverse as well. And you get more women applicants that, right? And well, Tiffany knows her stuff. It's, it's, it's many, many times they've shown this in research. Many, wow. many times. It's not, this is not like a new idea or this is just, this is just a fact yeah. But I would say all the things that, that, that both of you, Tiffany and I brought up as far as the job descriptions, pictures on the website, all these things, these are table stakes. These are table stakes and we have to get companies thinking about them in that way. These are not, Oh, let me like, let me see if I can go the extra mile. This isn't the extra mile. This is just meeting the basic requirements of having the type of environment that will make people comfortable and that will be a healthy place to work. And also some words I, I, I still see like people looking for superstars. I don't know. I, you know, Ninjas. ninjas ninja coders and things like yeah. that which is yeah hackers <laughs> yeah you need to be careful about using these words because it also yeah who would consider themselves as a superstar you know maybe someone would but i don't know if i would apply if someone was looking for a superstar because i would start questioning well am i really uh, am i really that good am i a superstar so yeah that words matter yeah, I think I think it also, I mean, you point out a few different things that, that make all the sense. So first of all, the internship programs, that allows to diversify your pool of talent. And especially if you're looking for, let's say, women to join more your your, your company, then women, you know, being in, in not, not in charge of those internships, but especially mentoring those type of positions or going to universities and talking to students, that makes a big impact because the, the person might not be even interested in that type of a career, but when they see somebody who they can relate with and not a, a dude talking about games, wearing his doom t-shirt, you know, then, then it's a whole different, different type of approach. So that, that, that's a very good point. A couple of more things like, you know, showing people at work. I think that's, that's super important. Even just considering myself, just looking at other, other career, like other 
companies' web pages. It's like you really want to see how is it like inside the studio, not just you know the images of the game and so forth. Like you really want to see what is it like behind the hood. And and the third thing was like being open towards those who are not like traditionally gamers. I understand what Tiffany, what you were saying is is that that you play games, but you just don't consider yourself being a gamer, and and that's a very good point. I personally approach it just like that. Like I would hire people, like I would look for people who are united by their interest towards games. I think that is very important element when you're joining games industry, because I've been at companies where people were disinterested in games and they were just doing because it's like a Silicon Valley thing. Like I'm going to learn about engagement or attention and move on. And we call them tourists because you know that they're going to go to, you know, the the next social network and, and they're just here to learn for a couple of years and, and get out. And I think I personally did not find that so interesting because they were they were not here to stay. Like it was clear that they don't want to be here. That they they kind of looked down on gamers and they were they were mm. usually in product roles, so they were very abusive towards gamers. Just it's fine to test different things. It's fine to churn your players because it doesn't matter. Like I'm only here just learning about A/B testing and and this type of stuff. So I would I would kind of align here with Tiffany of. Like you have to hire people who are united by their interest towards games. So I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I agree. We, we've had <laughs> we, oh, we've had different approaches. I think the first the first job postings we had something like tell us about your three favorite games or mm. things like that. We avoid the word gamer at all. But we've had interviews with people, and the, I think this has only happened with women who are come to interviews and almost excusing themselves for not being a gamer. Like, oh, I, I, I don't play games every day. I'm not like hardcore gamer, but maybe, you know, they have like Pokemon Go, they're a level 35 or something like, right? So I think the, mo the important thing is that yeah, you're going to work in an environment where people care about games. So it, it would be, you know, for me personally, I would find it difficult to work on a product or something that I don't believe in or for example football i don't think i, I would be able yeah. to work on like <laughs> football something with football because i'm just not that interested but in games there is there is so much we can we like different types of games and we can bond over that even though if you play uh dota or if you play the new you know clash quest or whatever games you're playing so <laughs> but uh, i think it's important that you you need to understand even though i think there there, there must be an underlying interest for games otherwise it would be difficult to to kind of re relate to what your coworkers are going to talk about yeah. during lunch and you know what we care about we make games so yeah exactly maybe like an easier way to just kind of break it down is that i think with a lot of what we've said it's more like the label that tends to not mm -hmm. resonate with women mm -hmm. hacker ninja gamer because labels are often cultural and if you're not a part of that culture, you might not ever feel like that label fits you. Yeah. So it's more about being thoughtful about how you screen for those things in interviews. And you can screen for interest in gaming and commitment to that field without simply saying, so are you a gamer? Tell me, like, you know, tell me how you're a gamer mm -hmm. or tell me how you're a ninja or me. a superstar. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Prove to and me. That, um, Cred. <laughs> Securing yourself and you don't have imposter syndrome, you feel comfortable explaining. But the vast majority of women do have imposter syndrome, which is 
feeling like you don't deserve to be where you are, even when you have earned it, basically, even when you have the job, mm-hmm. you feel like you don't have the right to be there. So that can come across really aggressive. So just thinking about how you're positioning your questions to be inclusive, a lot of it just comes down to the the language. Yeah. So talking about inclusivity, I mean, oh, actually, now that you mentioned, I remember like back in the days, this was almost a decade ago. I remember that if you apply to Riot, like you had to put in your, I think it was your gamer tag so that they can go and check your le- <laughs> level in <and> league. <laughs> that was, that was kind of intimidating. I'm sure they, they, they don't do that anymore, but, but that, that's like really testing, like how much you play their game. And of course that, that brought in the culture that is a little bit less inclusive towards people who are not totally psyched about League of Legends, but talking about inclusivity, like what do managers lose when they're not building an inclusive culture? Like Juliet, do you want to kind of give your your take on this? Sure. I mean, I think it's well documented that, you know, diverse teams are able to accomplish some great things that non less diverse teams are not able to. It's not without its its challenges and pains because different cultures, different backgrounds, different mm-hmm. dynamics, biologies, people communicate in different ways and it can be harder to understand and create the team dynamic that is is productive as as it, as it will ultimately be in the initial stages. But I mean, just enormous, enormous loss of creativity, enormous loss of, you know, great things to the industry that, you know, the industry deserves and that we deserve as community. I don't want to get too touchy-feely, but, you know, I do think that also companies as citizens have social obligations and, and, and those types of things are, it's really sad to see how much we've lost when you look back in history and not just in our industries, but in others to this issue, you know, the, the people who haven't joined because of it, the people who careers have not taken off because, because of these types of things who maybe left because they felt harm and didn't stay. I think, you know, these challenges of having people we do manage to recruit and then you know, should they leave? Should they decide that the culture is not healthy for them? You know, there, there can be a lot of loss there. But, you know, there is also an element of <laughs> the right thing to do and having a community, whether you're a corporate citizen or an individual citizen. You know, this is this comes down to the kind of society we want to have. You know? So so there's there's a lot of loss there, too, culturally. But it's it's enormous. Uh, Tiffany, do you feel like I mean, in the companies that you worked at, I mean, we're talking about Zynga, King, Cybo, they're, they feel pretty inclusive. Uh, like, would you, like, is that so, or, or did you feel differently or like, how could they improve? I don't know. I don't know where I'm heading at with this, but, but like in the companies that I worked at, you know, here in Finland, like they are far less in- inclusive or diverse compared to American companies where first of all, like in the US, so you have 30, 330 million people from all over the world versus like if you're in Norway or in Finland, I'd say, you know, 90% of the population is blonde. And, and that's, that, that's, you know, that's, that's not a lot of diversity to choose from. So, so just kind of asking like, like, how do you feel kind of going through these different companies and working in the US and then working in the, in the EU? Actually, UK is not part of EU anymore. In the UK and then in, in, in Denmark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like what's, the, what's the level of inclusivity? And, and yeah, just can you talk about your experiences of those? Yeah, I mean, I've only been at Saibo for mm-hmm. six months in Denmark. And it definitely is, I think, overall more progressive of country. But it's hard. I think any large company, you're going to have people that eventually kind of cross the line. So unfortunately, in 
almost uh, every job, not not every job, but most of them in gaming, I've experienced sexual harassment. And I think a lot of it is more about how the, the company deals with it and holding people accountable and making that process visible. Because, uh, you know, if you employ 10,000 people, it, it's hard to say that not one of them is ever going to act out of line. But typically what helps people feel uh, like they're in a, a psychologically safe environment is then how you deal with it afterwards. So yeah, kind of hard to move from that one. And that when we, when we discuss, I mean, I mean, it's just sad that you've, you've experienced sexual harassment. The, the weirdest part about sexual harassment is like what often I've, I've been in, in games for 13 years and I've definitely heard about instances. I've, I've never seen any instances myself, but I've definitely heard about, about many things. And it's kind of hard to say when you haven't seen it, like, like how to approach it, but what? Yeah. I mean, I can give some examples yeah. of stuff that I've gone through. Cause I think a lot of the time these only come out in lawsuits and then people kind of question like if they're real, mm -hmm. but a lot of the time, if you're a woman, you're like, of course they're real. Of course that stuff happens. Is it likely to happen? Maybe not. But out of, you know, the millions of people who work in games, did this exist? It's never really been much of a doubt for me. And I, I think like when I say some of these, you know, I'm not going to say what company it was at. None of this happened at the company I'm in currently. I've only yeah, been there for, for some and they're not like in chronological order. But when I was reflecting on this, I was like, oh, well, yes, when I was much earlier in my career, it was much more egregious and happened way more often. Like as an intern, once my boss actually showed me a dick pic and a pair of breasts that he got off an app called Fling. And he said that because they were not his, it was okay. And we didn't have any kind of like relationship where this was normal and not coming out of left field. Like we weren't friends. And then I told him it made me uncomfortable later in a one-to-one. -one. And then he just said, yeah, well, you will not be here much longer. So let's just, and so literally like he had been thinking about the fact that an internship is only three months long. And then actually as a, an intern in the exit interview of all the other interns, he asked them uh, if they thought I was dating another male intern saying that he was sure we were dating, which is just like so crazily inappropriate. I, I can only think that the distance of that power hierarchy played into the fact that he was comfortable doing that. Is it, is it so that, I mean, I, I, it just sounds fucking crazy, but is it so that, um, like, I don't even know how to approach this. Like, do like, when some men get it, get into the uh, sort of like a manager positions, like, like, is that when, when the sexual harassment happens or does it happen on, on, no, between, no? Like I, I I'm, I'm just, so clueless about this. No. Just yeah, just <laughs> no. tell me because because it's as I not. said, like I've never I've I've heard about things and they've usually been in the situations where where the person is clearly, you know, a, a lead level in, in the company and has been doing something stupid. But but yeah, Julia, just tell me like when 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 do harassment occur? Like is it all the time and there's no like is there any kind of, kind of like what is the how wanna say it? Like what is the like yeah, how do you know? Like how do you know that yeah. this like I mean, I, I know because know I've how, experienced it, yeah. but sadly, like you're, it's interesting. You're saying like, oh, like I know this happens, but I've never like seen it happen, been yeah. around it. Right. And, and, and of course I, I, I'd hazard to guess that all three women on this call have, have experienced it everywhere they've been personally. And, and, and that's just, 
it's really sad. You know, it's, 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 it's profoundly sad, but no, I, I would say absolutely not. I think, um, to the extent that there isn't even a specific culture of, I hate using this term, but I'm going to use it because mm -hmm. I don't have a better one. Growiness mm -hmm. to, to the extent that that's not necessarily specifically an issue. I mean, I definitely experienced even like, you know, gaming professionals in my, in my company who are younger than me in age and class say horrifically inappropriate things to me. And it seemed to have no, <laughs> and me in a position that I'd been with the company longer and I was connected at that point, at least to, to HR and the HR group. And I mean, it just, it, this, it just, it doesn't seem to be a, a, a filter or a boundary there that's appropriate. And it almost seems very, very closely connected to privilege and the idea that you can just say what's on your mind because you've never had anyone tell you, you can't, mm -hmm. you know? I think that, well, since joining the games industry, I have to say that the majority of the experiences I've had was prior to joining games. It's been working in tech for many, many years. And I think some reasons why I've kind of been, I don't know if this spared is the right word for it, but working in a company in Norway, in a industry that is still young in Norway, in a company where I've been part since we were eight people, we, we built the uh, company, we built culture. And I, I don't know if it's because people are younger or, or it's because we have a diverse uh, team, but you know, every incident that has happened after I joined uh, the games industry have either been outside of Norway, outside of the company or in Norway, but in other situations with other industries. So I, I think that, yeah, I think there, there are so many things happening. So I don't want to say that like, this is, this is not happening because it really is. I've, I've heard the stories, but I think that what company you are in has mm -hmm. makes a big difference as well. And on the, on the positive side, when it talking about inclusivity, I've learned so much from joining the games industry. And there are so many good things with this industry where that is more inclusive than any other job or industry that I have been part of. So there are also bright sides and a lot of positivity as well. How, how do you prevent harassment? I mean, yeah, it's just like, sorry, for, like I'm probably for the first time, like loss of words, because this is yeah. I, I know that this is happening, and I, I mean, everybody knows that it's happening. I mean, today, again, a bunch of lawsuits came in for, for Activision Blizzard and, and so forth and so forth. Like, nobody's denying that. It's just, like, being in this industry for such a long time, I've also worked in the U.S. and I've worked in EU, and not having seen it is kind of like, like, how do I prevent something that I don't even see happening? Like, that's um, what I'm kind of like. Like, what do I need to do to to make sure that this doesn't happen? But, but here's the thing, like, I, I think actually you have seen it, but mm -hmm. it probably hasn't registered. Like one of the other things that, that happened was I had agreed at a, a company Christmas party to walk to the train platonically with a coworker when the mm -hmm. party ended. And then he was really drunk and had said, okay, I'm leaving now. The train is leaving. We need to go. And I said, no. And then he grabbed me by the arm and tried to literally like pull me out of the building. And I uh was like no i don't want to go and looked around my coworkers, but they were like drinking and thought it was a funny thing and i had to actually ask my friend to like to stop him mm -hmm. because i really was not wanting to leave especially by someone pulling me by the arm out the door so you know would i say he was trying to kidnap me absolutely not but it was still something that was inappropriate and stuck with me as oh if i'm at a company party 
maybe someone, if they drink too much, will try to like physically move me somewhere I don't want to be. But at the time, it doesn't look like harassment because when something happens in front of other people, as you're processing, hey, is this okay or not? Your default is to like put on a face and laugh it off. And then only when you're really processing it later, are you like, no, that was not okay. And I feel upset about it. So in the moment, it's really easy. I think if you're an onlooker to think that everything is okay. And even if someone makes a joke like, oh, harassment training, AKA a woman's fastest way to erase, which is another thing I've heard, you know, everyone will laugh because if you're the one person not laughing, as, as the only woman in the room, maybe, then that kind of outs you as being the, the party pooper or possibly now maybe you're going to report them and you're worried about looking like that. So I, I would say you probably have seen it, but you were relying on facial cues of someone being visibly uncomfortable or asking for help or making a big deal of it to say like, oh, I'm seeing harassment. But that's really not how it works. It is spotting something where you have to really have the empathy of if that happened to me, how would I feel given, you know, maybe that person's history mm -hmm. and think about that in the moment rather than relying on someone to come to you because that is like such a big filter. You're going to miss 90% of what's out there that way. Yeah. I mean, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's not that I'm saying that I've never seen harassment. I've just never seen it at work. Like, I've, of course, I've seen it <clears throat> outside work plenty. <clears throat> so I'm kind of, that's true. Like, I'm kind of looking at those social cues that, that would exist, you know, outside a working environment. I think you can start, you, you can start defining a code of conduct, which is mm -hmm. easy to understand. I've been working in companies before they have a code of conduct where you need to go to a week training to understand the code of conduct, then, then it's not successful. So have a code of conduct and uh, talk about it. What does it mean? Because people interpret things differently and then create anti-harassment policies where you also write something about what is harassment and that it's it can be this but it's not limited to this so create the discussions or write write something and have everyone read through it and com commit to it like yeah i've signed that you've seen and accepted this this is our our policies and guidelines. And mm -hmm. then you also need to specify what happens if you see something or if you experience something, who do you go to? And then you need to train the people that they should go to. How do they receive them? If, if someone has an experience, how do you talk with them? How do you guide them? How, how do you help them out? So there is a lot you can do by just defining and establishing that these are the policies that we, that we have in the company. And this is what it means. Yeah, but, I don't want to. Go ahead, Julian. No, I no. don't want to sound too radical, no. but these yeah. companies who are experiencing this have these. Again, we're talking about yeah. table stakes. Here. Yeah. If you're asking, what can I do as a as an ally or just as a company owner or as someone who really is invested in this? And clearly, you are. First of all, even having this discussion with us is very helpful, and I just want to appreciate that you all yeah. made time to even have it, and that we are all here together. And thank you to my co-panelists, but also talking about it verbally and having conversations with your team about, about this kind of thing and being yeah. open about it. I don't think I've ever had or seen a manager or a leader 
have a conversation with with a team to say, you know, maybe you're talking about your team mission, your team vision. You're like, and also like here are the norms that we want to set. We want to have the kind of team where everyone's comfortable. We want to have the kind of team where if someone feels uncomfortable, other people stand up for them. And you always know that you should always feel safe in this environment. And if you don't, I want you to come to me. And if for some reason I ever make you feel unsafe, here's a list of names of people that I want you to feel like you can yeah. go to. Mm -hmm. And I want you to call me out because I need to know because I have blind spots too. Like I've never seen that happen, right? Why can't we have conversations like that? And would it mean anything to any of you on this call if you saw a leader say something like that and have discussions like that on at least an annual basis just to have real discussion? Because the policies are... They're so important, Annette. I completely agree with you. But these companies that are having these problems, everyone signed that policy. Yeah. They went to the training. You know, this is not solving the problem. This is setting a table stakes that, for a lot of people, is sadly meaningless, or it's a joke. To, and to Tiffany's point, you see people, oh, oh, HR isn't here. Well, excuse my language, but fuck that. If you are saying that you are, we're hoping that HR is in the room. You've made somebody very uncomfortable, and you know it. And you're just trying to make yourself feel better about it. So, you know, anybody in that room should be saying something. And I don't see that happen often enough. And I've run trainings on what do you do when you're that person yeah. in the room, someone makes this inappropriate joke. And you have that moment where you're like, do I say something? It's just like on the street when you see a violent act. Do I get involved or do I just, I don't want to be involved in this. Mm -hmm. Get me out of here. Yeah, you know, so you can like, you stand up and say like, this is not okay or stand up. For and I've had that happen yeah. one time. One time in all the incidents, and I wish I could say who it was because I'll be forever grateful that they did. Someone did something very inappropriate physically to me and somebody else, an engineer on the team, saw it and he came over and he said, are you okay? I saw what happened and I don't think that was okay. Are you okay? And I had never had that happen. And, and that's, that's incredible. We need that. We need that. Much more of that. So I don't mean to go on a rant. No, no. This is, this is really good. I mean, yeah, because – it's really important to have have you guys talk about this because because for those who haven't you know perceived that they've they've seen these things and and like we all go through this code of conduct we all do the training and it's it, honestly like a lot of people just skip it because it's like the, you know it gives you two minutes to read a scenario and then you have to choose between two options like I've done those multiple different times and I wouldn't say that that's a great training. It's kind of what you do during your lunch break because you have to do it because there's endless emails coming in that you have to now fill in this, this type of thing. We, I've never gone through a training where, where we would have sat down even with this type of a setting or any kind of other setting where we would discuss these type of things where somebody would, 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 you know, open up about their, you know, being harassed or kind of getting like a different perspective. It's always this, the stupid virtual training that I wouldn't learn anything through that. Not about harassment, not about any, any smallest thing. Like it's just, it's just useless. So, so I think there's yeah. also a big difference here with the size, size of the company, right? Yeah. So yeah, bigger, bigger corporations and smaller companies as well. So I wanted to ask actually yeah. Tiffany, sorry, I wanted to ask you about that the one incident you were talking about. So the person kind of dragged you by your arm, you know, let's go and, and whether that person was, was harassing or perceiving us, whether that was platonic or not, or whatever you, you want to put it, like what I'm interested in is, did you report that or should you have reported that? Like, what, what did you do afterwards? Like, I'm, I'm just interested in like, what should follow that type of a situation that make you feel extremely uncomfortable? Unfortunately, I don't know. I can't, don't know if I can say unfortunately or not. I, I didn't report after that situation. Um, 
I just wanted to move past it. Okay. And I think in times where I would just personally say, given like risk of retaliation or going through some process where I need to speak about the experience with a whole bunch of people, I would probably report in the case where it's someone that I would see often who I had to have interactions with in which I felt like kind of jeopardized my ability to work effectively. And in this case, it was someone I, I didn't know very well at all. And it was a big office. So I never really had to interact with them again. And it wasn't a big deal, but there was another case once where it was another party where there was a coworker that was really drunk and like just handing out bottles of alcohol, which they were not supposed to be doing. And then actually took my phone and refused to give it back to me until I kissed them. Seen by a lot of people, including their manager, and actually they were let go afterwards. So uh, that was one case where I felt like the process held. It was also a myriad of things. I'm not sure it was entirely because of their treatment of me, but also that they broke numerous roles with what they were doing. But I had been very worried because they had a very visible role where I would have had to interact with them a lot after they tried to force me to kiss them. So in that case, I did see good follow-up. I've had other cases where like, you know, the first one they're like, oh, well, you're going to leave soon. But in others, it was suggested that I almost like switch teams, which in the case of it being something harassment related and not due to performance is kind of dicey. Like in some cases it really might be right because it might be that the culture fit of the team is not good, even if they were to solve the problem. And it's just not worth you going through the emotional labor of trying to do that work. But sometimes it can feel kind of punitive, like, oh, we don't really want to fix this. So just move to a different team. So I, I yeah. think you have to be really careful about that. And if someone really looking critically and saying, well, even if you do move teams, we still want to hold this person accountable or even not accountable. Because I think that all that feels punitive depending on if it was not that big of a deal, like if it was more of a microaggression or saying something wrong. I think it's more that that person did something that made someone uncomfortable and it's an opportunity for them to grow if it surfaced to them in the right way of how they can not keep doing that throughout their career where they will inevitably at some point piss off someone that is important enough it bars them from you know getting farther. So it's actually the kindest thing to that person to work with HR or someone on how you can just kind of show them what went wrong in that interaction. And I think that's at like uh, the heart of a lot of these processes is it's just like immediately skips in either do nothing or disciplinary action. And there's actually like a vast middle ground that would help more people report because often you're like, oh, well, do I want to get this person in trouble? What if most of the time I like them? Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. time, you know, they just did not use good judgment. Yeah. If there was more faith that things would be handled in a way that's like, very humane and like things that people can learn from, then there might be a lot more reporting of, of things that happen. I, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. If you don't mind me just jumping on that, first of all, very benevolent of you, like to be thinking of the other person in this scenario. But we were, we were just talking at work about the woke ladder and, you know, how different people are at different levels of awareness and, you know, the woke, ladder? the woke ladder. Yeah. And many of us were, you know, many of us were not always where we are, you know, and, and maybe because of the way that our parents raised us and things like that, there are lots of blind spots that we had. So there definitely is, I think, a lot room, a lot more room in these conversations. And when HR is involved to 
you know, what's the real motivation here? Do we want to punish someone or do we want to solve the problem? Do we want to help someone understand how they can be better to other people and be kinder in their world? That said, sometimes you do have to discipline. I mean, that's just, you know, you have to keep your other employees safe. You have to take care of your business. You have to protect everybody involved. So sometimes that is the right thing. But I, I, I appreciate what you said about 90% of the time I like this person. They just, they, they said something that you can't do that. You know, please don't do that. And can we handle this in another way? But I do want everyone to know, particularly in the U.S., that retaliatory actions like forcibly moving someone to another team because they make a complaint about someone on their current team, that, that is the kind of thing that lawsuits are made of. Like you can't just, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know what the circumstances were. And yes, you can provide options if they're more comfortable with moving. You want to make those options available if they're feasible. But moving someone to another team because they complained about something and potentially screwing up their career, taking away projects from them, that's big time no-no. Right? I wanted to kind of get back to, to one of the points that you raised was you mentioned reporting multiple times, and this is this is kind of like a challenging thing. So barring harassment, like talking about things where you can kind of understand that the person who is making you feel uncomfortable is not doing it intentionally. Like that's quite typical that, that happens. Like in those type of situations, is it more difficult as a female to talk directly to that person? And it it's just easier to go and talk to HR or to, to somebody else rather than confront the person saying like, hey, I really don't like when you say these things because it makes me feel extremely uncomfortable because of these reasons. Like, like what's the, uh, what's, what's the, what's the way approach? Because I know that if it was a male colleague that would be telling me that they don't like what the other male colleague would be saying, like my, my instinct would be saying like, why don't you tell him that? Like, like first confront the person. And if that doesn't solve it, then I'll come in and, and solve this issue. But I think it's important that the two of you solve this because it's clearly that like the way you explain to me, it's like not intentional. Like, like what's the, what's the right way to approach this with, with, especially with a female colleague? Well, it is, it is very difficult because even just speaking out in the first place, regardless if it's the person who is acting in a way that making you comfortable or, or talking to someone else. So I would say that if someone comes to you and, and uh, wants to talk about this, these things, then keep in mind that it probably took a lot of courage to just speak out in the first place. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't then encourage to go and talk directly, uh, not when it comes to harassment or making people feel uncomfortable. So I think it's, it's, it's more about creating an environment where people feel safe enough to actually come and tell you if they experience mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. I think that like if someone comes to you as the manager, what that implicitly means is that they don't feel comfortable going directly to that person. So I think first it's nice to be that empathetic ear because they're only going to come to you with something like that once to see if you react in a way that feels supportive and helpful to them. And if your answer is simply, you know, deal with it yourself face to face, you know, be brave, then that's probably not helpful if you don't give further advice and support. And then you're going to actually be blind to anything else that happens to that person because they already know that you did not help them remediate the situation. So I think a lot of the time you can ask like, what would you like me to do? What are you looking for here? Because sometimes someone just wants you to hold space for them and then recognize that they're in a difficult spot mm -hmm. and not do anything else. And that they know now if it maybe becomes a pattern and it's repeated, 
you can come to them and ask for ways to then actually talk to the person. Maybe you can be there to help mediate it and help them feel safe so they know that they'll be heard and not railroaded. Or maybe they would like to go directly to HR. In the vast majority of situations, I've heard people don't want to go to HR until something is so bad, yeah. they might already be in a position where they'd rather look for another job. Like usually going to HR is a last resort. And actually in all the women at groups I've been at in different companies, we realized that it was so common. We had to make a process for it that in, you know, any talk over lunch about any topic at the end, we would have people come to us and say, Hey, I just experienced this really weird thing and I don't know what to do about it. And they did like, know they can go to HR, but they were not feeling it was severe enough or they were ready to take that step. And they were asking us for advice. And that placed us in a difficult position mm -hmm. because we were part of that company and to be very careful about what we said. And also we were not sure what are we supposed to do if then they do not want to involve HR. So we actually had to talk to the HR function and say, hey, if people come to us with this, what are our different options? Sometimes people aren't aware of the resources. So we would just direct them to those or say that we can hold space for them if they don't want us to do anything, but we can't give them further advice until they would want to talk to HR. So I, I think there's a usefulness in having other places that they can go besides the manager. Mm -hmm. Like if there's an anonymous reporting where they can go online and leave something, it's just so HR maybe knows that it's happening, but it's not immediately linked back to them or they can go to HR themselves. So if you're a small company, you don't have the HR function yet, and you're really relying on people to talk to their own manager or the manager of the person where they are having an issue with, I'd say that's a really big red flag because you're only going to hear about issues where the person is basically like, yeah, if this goes wrong and it ruins my career trajectory at this company, I'm prepared to quit. That that's the only level you're going to hear issues at if you don't have those other systems in place. Yeah, just to be yeah. clear, the scenario in my head that I was going through is is a lot of the times it's like people are having hard time working together. I'm, I'm talking about yeah. two men and they're arguing. And what I'm trying to coach them is to go through like how to like what is bugging you and let's discuss it and and how to kind of bring them together and understand each other's ways of working. Of course, like. If, if one of my female colleagues would come to me, I wouldn't, you know, I, I would behave differently. That's just my instinct to, to, mm. to not kind of put her, like if she feels uncomfortable due, due to, I don't know, vulgar language of the, of her colleague, like the, the guy uses terms that are just make her, make her uncomfortable, not at her, but just overall says certain things that, that make her uncomfortable. I would naturally go and talk to the guy like, Hey, this is not a locker room. Like, like, can you quit? talking to these type of things like like i wouldn't ask her to talk to, to the guy so so yeah yeah i understand I'm, I'm just the other part that that i'm always wary like myself before reporting anything is is in a lot of interactions that i have with people like if i'm not having the perfect interaction with with a colleague of mine or, or anybody at at who I'm interacting with, I tend to give them direct feedback because if I would go a step above them, that would cause a lot of problems to them and they really have to mess up for me to kind of not talk to them directly first. But I, but what I was trying to ask the question is like, do do women in gaming, do they feel as comfortable confronting others or or is it is it really that, you know, is like how important it is to set up these reporting structures? That's what I was kind of like leaning to is like how to how to make the organization in in a way that it feels safe but it also it's not 
it's not like, it's not the type of organization where you have to report constantly. Like you can never discuss with anybody face to face. The first thing, if, if you feel uncomfortable, you go and report. And I think that creates a culture of <clears throat> everybody we being very wary. And I don't feel that it would be as inclusive at that point. Like I would, I would rather people be just open with each other and working together, respectful to each other, rather than looking at ways to report somebody. So I don't know if yeah. that makes sense. I mean, typically in these kind of policies, like we were talking about earlier, there's a very clear escalation tier, right? It's if you feel uncomfortable by, about something someone said, mm -hmm. if you feel comfortable talking to them directly, please do so. No. If you do not feel comfortable talking to that person, please go to this next person. If that is not acceptable to you or you don't feel comfortable, here are the other people. You can at any time go to the CEO and have your, you know, and have a talk with them too. You know, find someone in the organization you feel comfortable with. You know, if it reaches this level or that level, please put us on notice because we want to be able to protect the company. We want to know what's going on. You know, so there are these different tiers, and that's really important to have that laid out. But to our prior point, this is kind of table stakes kind of thing. I think what really doesn't happen is people actually building the types of relationships amongst their team members as team leads, as managers that actually encourage people and make them feel like, I could actually have that conversation with my manager, with my lead. I could go to them. Or if not, I have a lead that's parallel to them that I trust and I can have that conversation with them. But I would encourage everyone who's in my piece of the business, the HR side of the business, to elevate the level of compassion and understanding and nuance in these, in these cases. Because if people don't feel they can go to you, you know, then you're not going to be put on notice to something that could potentially lead to more. And even just to have that information, if someone says they don't want anything <clears throat> done with it, we need to be respectful of that because then only will we be receiving the kind of information we need that if something happens later, we know that, okay, there was history here. It seemed like nothing early on. We let it slide. They didn't want any action taken. We took no action. But now we have other things that have happened. And so we need to look at it a little bit differently and we can launch like something more formal if, if we think that it's escalating. How do you set up that type of organization? Because that, that sounds, you know, that sounds perfect. Like, like what, you know, what are the steps? Because, you know, I'm, I'm going through, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's challenges like as organization grows, like these type of things kind of come in afterwards, like they usually come in after an incident, but how do you, how do you kind of create this type of a culture and this type of organization that it grows in a very inclusive way? And, yeah. and as you bring goes, in more people and so forth. Yeah. yeah, it goes back to a point someone made earlier. I think it was you or Tiffany about how do you prevent harassment from happening, right? Like, yeah. Okay, let's say in an ideal world, we can actually do this. What would it look like? <clears throat> One thing it would look like is not hiring as fast and loose as we currently do. Because the talent war is so hot, mm -hmm. right? It's so hard to get talent. It's so hard to get good engineers, good product managers. Everyone's fighting for talent. Everyone's fighting for the best GMs and all this kind of thing. And so, hey, they seem like a cool person. Like, come on in. Oh, my gosh. They worked on this title. They have this award. They did Game of the Year. Oh, my gosh. You know, whatever the case may be that gets people in the door. They aren't vetted so, so much for these kinds of things. Right. There's no sort of thought of like, you know, is this someone who in the interview process, you know, did they treat everyone respectfully? Were we even paying attention to the kind of interactions they had? And it's not going to be obvious in the interview yeah. process either. Right. You, you're no. not going to usually have this kind of thing come out very clearly. But 
as people are, you know, having lunches and doing the dinners and doing the, the, the elbow rubbing and all this kind of thing, to be a little bit more aware of even having these kinds of things on the interviewer's mind instead of just being about the subject matter. I do think that that is an issue right from the get-go, that we just go for who has the hottest, you know, resume profile, game titles, and, you know, throw caution to the wind with regard to any other type of vetting. So when, especially in parts of the industry where partying is a way that a lot of people get jobs still, like this is still a thing, and being being popular almost is, is a way of put it is is something you know that's a lot of the times where I've personally seen the personalities that are very casual about these topics and that eventually start crossing lines in ways that you know would not have been impossible to extrapolate based on the kind of approach they took to to, to dealing with other people. So that is early stage, but I do think it's it's very relevant. So, so you would you, yeah, would you, I mean, I, I don't, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people. I've, I've, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'll be able to, to notice that somebody is, is a psychopath or, or, or a... you're pretending like that's the bar. Do you, no, really no, think no, no, but, do you think but, these people are psychopaths? They're no, not. no, but I, okay. So let's put it this way. If I'm interviewing somebody who's very senior in the industry, I usually assume that they're very good at interviews. Like it's just, yeah. That's I mean, what I'm talking about. Lunches, yeah. dinners. It's, so it's so that, that was my question. Like, would you take them for a dinner? Like 100%. When you talk, yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's what I was kind of going through. So I, I was trying 100%. to say that I would never see that in the, no. in the setting of no, the company. And what I would normally do, like, like anybody who's been interviewed by me <laughs> knows that with the senior people knows that I take them for a walk. I go for, for a different place. Like I take them outside the, the office always to just open up and, and yeah. that leads to a totally different, I usually come in and say like, Hey, you've been sitting in this room all day. Like, let's go, let's get out of here. Love it. Let's just, let's just, let's just take a walk and, and talk about this and that. And, and that's, that's kind of like my setting because it opens up a totally different view of the, of the, of the person who's going through the gauntlet. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think also there, there are things like that you can ask in the interview that are not necessarily weed out questions, but where you can identify maybe this person hasn't really thought about privilege before mm -hmm. and how they interact with others. Mm -hmm. Like there's a common question of how do you handle a conflict with a coworker? If they're not mentioning that they're thinking about their own privilege and power dynamics in the situation, depending on what kind of coworker mm -hmm. they give the example for, then that's something where I wouldn't say, like, oh, you can't hire that person. They're not woke enough, but that, that person did not include that in their framework of how they handle disagreements or in how they might use their um, authority versus influence or how using their influence can actually create inequities mm -hmm. within the company. Like, like one of the really popular things of saying is that, you know, oh, I, I don't ever lead by authority, but by influence. But if they don't really talk about extending their influence to others and wanting to raise other people up within that and mentoring people, then that's one where maybe that doesn't come to their mind immediately of what part of their role in the company is. Where I would say if you hire them into any kind of senior manager role, it is. So it's something that if we really want to hire that person, I would explain to them and have that included as part of like my internal idea of ways to develop them is this person is great at their job. They're generally seem like they're easy to work with. But how can they then be adjusting themselves to have greater awareness of the different types of people that they work yeah. with? 
So it's not always like a, oh, don't hire them if they do this kind of situation, but you're hiring the full person. And hopefully you're not hiring someone who can do 100% of the job at the gate because that person's going to be bored. Mm. Ideally, you're hiring someone with some room to grow and understanding of these things can be one of those areas. I do have an interview question that's connected to this, if anyone wants it. It's how have you used your role to be a champion for underrepresented groups? Some people are like, I, I, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very honest. So feel free to try that. But it's not bulletproof, right? People that, can do lots of things. It sounds very American, it's, to be honest. Like that, super, that type of question. Super US-centric. It, it, is, in, it is. In Norway, <laughs> I've understood from recruiting that it's not as common in other countries to do reference into use uh, when hiring. And we always do that. We usually do at least two reference into use. And I know companies here in Norway who do like a lot more than that. So of course, if you ask a person who you're interviewing to give you some references, the chances are they will pick someone who would, there's a high chance they will speak kindly of the person, but if you have some good questions, say if you make yourself like an interview guide or some good questions, you can ask the interviewer as well. Because sometimes when I'm called as a reference for someone I worked with in the past, I feel like the person calling is just trying to confirm their own their own you know thoughts of, of, about the candidate and just wants me to confirm so that they can say, okay, I'll send the offer. But if you ask some good questions, you can have some really insightful answers that helps you create the image of the person that you're Mm -hmm. considering. And I think it's also important that you talk about the values of the company and how do you, you know, what's important, what's the culture like, and to have that person reflect on that as well and, and be clear on that and discuss, yeah, how do we do things here? What's important for us? I I listened to the, to the podcast that you did with the, the woman from Riot Mm-hmm. two years Angela ago or Angela yeah and she had some really great points about this as well like this is this is our values and this is what it means like you cannot misunderstand it because it's it's very clear this is what we believe in you kind mm-hmm. of commit to that when when joining so yeah yeah that's 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 one of the things that 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 I've you know taken on on a part as as you know, becoming a CEO or running my own company is like nowadays I, I sit every single person who comes down, who comes to our company and go through the values and how you're expected to work at this company and what is expected of you and do clear example, like in terms of behavior. And no, I don't talk about harassment. I probably should, should also add that code of conduct. I talk mostly about how important it is to voice out things, how important it is to not be quiet, how important it is to, you know, to give feedback, take feedback and, and make your own anyways i'm not going to go through through my value deck and, and all that kind of stuff but but i think it's really important that that somebody explains the values and explains the ways of working and what is expected of you day one like this is how we expect you to behave in this company because other companies might, might have it differently but i also want to say that that interviews are difficult like in interviews i usually focus on how the person would solve the challenge that we have but then the probation time is the one where we see if the person is working according the way, according to the values, as well as according to the the ways of working that have been clearly explained from the beginning. And then we go through the like in Finland as well as Norway is not at will, nor Denmark. We have a very clear six month probation period during which we are very like we have multiple different steps where we ask everybody, both the people who work under that person, as well as next to that person, as well as above that person, how they're doing, and explain to that person how 
how he or she is going through through this process and we make the decisions based on that uh, rather than than kind of like putting too much of i don't know analysis before in the interview phase because it's very difficult to find out how the person is working in an interview setting you kind of need them to to be in the mix of it before before making those calls in my opinion all right, we've been talking for for a long time. I don't even know how long, probably an hour and a half because my computer is saying that I'm running out of battery. So I wanted to to end up this in in, in very kind of like actionable topics. Like like going with each of you, like what are so like what would be the key takeaway for people listening to this and <clears throat> kind of trying to prevent these, you know, bad things, harassment happening in their company. Like what should they be vigilant about? about? Like what are the, the most important things? So Annette, let's start with you. Like what yeah. would be the sort of a key takeaway? I think it, it's a lot about the culture uh, of the company and that you really need to, to focus because the there is a culture if you work on it or not. So you have to define what kind of culture do you want to have. And I like to refer to this pyramid that uh, Joachim Akren is, has been talking a lot about where there is four layers and the, the, the bottom and the foundation is about the company culture, how you build psychological safety for your employees. How do you focus on diversity to have a diverse set of views, a different set of backgrounds and that what, what are your values and, and how do we behave in this, this, this company? So, and then it, the pyramid builds up until the, you know, the end goal is to have successful gains, right? But I think to have psychological safety where people know what's expected of them and also what, what's the values, you know, uh, having a company, a culture where people are respectful of each other and where there is room to speak out, but always in a respectful way so that you know that if you speak out, you will not be ridiculed or uh, made fun of, but respect for your views. So I think that's a very good way to start. I think it's also very important to, I, I'm still a fan of the, the, you know, the code of conduct and the, the policies. And this is probably for me coming from a small, a smaller company compared to large corporations where we actually wrote the anti-harassment policies ourselves we wrote it and then we kind of implemented it and i think it's it's important to talk through and and just create awareness that this is something that we we care about and of course if there are any incidents happening you need to follow up on them right i i, I hear a lot of stories where both from from you what you told today but also from other people that many times they experienced that when they first had the courage to speak out because Many times people start overthinking and like, maybe I, did I do something and was this really a big deal? I don't want to make any trouble. But then when, when people do speak out, they need to be met with respect and have a feeling that, yeah, this is, I'm taking, being taken seriously. I've been, I'm being listened to. So I think that's, yeah, that's a, a good way to start. Okay. Joachim's pyramid. So that, that yeah. makes all, all the sense. Uh, <laughs> Tiffany, what, what would be your kind of takeaway? I would think about really, as a company, you need to understand how big a commitment do you want to make to this? 
And, and that's really a lot of what's behind it. If you don't think it's a big issue and you've actually done the work and talked to the people to see if it is, maybe your commitment can be on the smaller side and you don't actually need to invest in building out a lot of processes for dealing with what is already there. But if you decide like you're going to go all in, you know, the, the full hog, as we would say in America, in the South, I would really think about how are you going to build a process that actually removes this bias as much as possible and tries to bridge the gap from the code of conduct to culture. Because a lot of this is also not just, you know, are we punishing people enough because they're not following the code of conduct, but how can we give people like positive reinforcement for upholding the cultural values and knowing that that is part of the norms? So not only if they say something that is not okay, will they get in trouble? It also just like, they won't seem cool anymore. And that actually is a really powerful motivator to us as humans. So actually Annette and I wrote, I, I think more like point by point analysis of this for Deconstructor of Fun, but it's a game over the beginning of the end of harassment and games. We really have, you know, five steps that you can take to deal with it when it's there but also steps that you can take to prevent it from happening on a cultural level. But you have to really understand what is your level of investment because one of the worst things you can do is overcommit and then only go halfway and your employees will, will see that. So start with something maybe small that you can measure and then that'll give you the buy-in to go further with it if you need to. There's a lot of history to these issues and social constructs. And, you know, obviously we all know this can be very political, but at the end of the day, I think that what is really important is building empathy in a company, empathy from anyone in a position of power and empathy sideways and upwards. And that's something that's a very personal issue for a lot of folks. I'm personally a huge fan of meditation and, and building, you know, basically new neural pathways for folks along those lines. I think as a society, this is, this is kind of a, a major, major issue. And, and this is how it plays out in our corporate world. And so that's, that's really what I see as like an area that companies can take action, you know, work on building empathy through workshops, meditations, and supporting those kinds of discussions versus just, you know, beyond what, what everything that Tiffany Nett said, which was also so important, you know, getting to a little bit deeper level with folks and getting some understanding of, you know, how really do other people want to be treated? What is the nice, kind thing to do? What kind of company would you want to work in in terms of how you'd want to be treated? And how does how do these things really feel when you're saying them to someone else? Maybe preventing that kind of mentality in the first place. As a, I want to say also a final thought. I, I would say that in my experience, like in the last 13 years, most of the people working in, in the industry as well as in any other industry are good people. And, and Absolutely. I just wish that, that there would be, you know, like more support towards this because these things are not new, but for some people they are like, because now they're, they're just being more talked about. So there will be more support as, as companies and managers are looking to diversify their teams are looking to, to, you know, learn about this, to, to, to be better at, you know, seeing harassment, for example, like myself, and it wouldn't be seen as virtue signaling or it wouldn't be seen as as any kind of mal malicious 
thing that they're doing, but more like they're really trying to understand this better. So let's just help managers to understand this better rather than attack them that they haven't understood something before. Like we wouldn't do that if somebody was losing, trying to lose weight. Like, why haven't you lost weight? It's like, no, we would be helping that person. Same thing. Not, not the same thing, but, but, you know, the kind of same approach, like this is a starting point and we need to understand that it's a, like different people start from different starting points, but the most important part is that they're trying to, they're trying to become better and, and build better organizations that are more inclusive and more diverse mm-hmm. and, and through that more, you know, more powerful. So. Definitely agree. Anyways, <laughs> that was my, that was my rant. Uh, thank you. That's the attitude that we really all should have because the only way that we're going to get people engaged with it and not just want to drop it like a hot potato. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just be be open about talking about it. So thank you so much, Annette. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you so much, Juliet, for for educating me and and others who who listen through this. Truly appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yeah, for facilitating us. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.